Heads up, there's one use of explicit language in this episode. I recently spent nearly $3,000 on a bright pink glittery carbon playboat. I have always paddled pink playboats, and I guess I never really reflected why. I think it's probably because the spaces I playboat in are primarily male-dominated. Welcome to Episode 2 of Women in Whitewater, a four-part limited audio series about what it's like to be a woman in the professional whitewater industry. My name is Rowan Stewart, and this podcast is the result of my outdoor and experiential education master's thesis research. Today's episode is titled, The Performance of Paint. The purpose of this thesis was to explore how professional women kayakers perform their gender in the leisure spaces surrounding whitewater kayaking. Consequently, I also wanted to examine whether these performances resist, reinforce, or repurpose the status quo. As a reminder, this sound is the way that I indicate a citation is present. All sources used in this episode can be accessed on our website, womeninwhitewater.wordpress.com, or through the link in the show notes. There are three key theories that you will learn about in each of these episodes, post-structuralism, gender performativity, and discipline. If you're new to the podcast, please pause this episode now and go back to episode one, which explains my research methods and the idea of post-structuralism. In this episode, I will define and give examples of gender performativity in the context of whitewater kayaking. How does our appearance change the assumptions that others make about us, and how do those assumptions change the ways that we dress and act? In the next 20 minutes, I will share true stories from professional women whitewater kayakers about the ways they perform their genders and how they are treated while on and around the river. The story that Brooke shared in the introduction to this episode is just one example of gender performance using the power of the color pink. We will return to that story slightly later on in the episode, but first, what does it mean for someone to perform their gender? The theories of gender performativity in this research come primarily from the ideas of Judith Butler. Butler is an American philosopher, gender theorist, and professor at UC Berkeley. To say that gender is performative is a little different because for something to be performative means that it produces a series of effects. We act and walk and speak and talk in ways that consolidate an impression of being a man or being a woman. We act as if that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or something that's simply true about us, a fact about us. Actually, it's a phenomenon that's being produced all the time and reproduced all the time. So to say gender is performative is to say that nobody really is a gender from the start. I know it's controversial, but that's my claim. What Butler is saying here is that our gender, our position as genderqueer, woman, man, or otherwise, is literally developed through our actions or performances, as she calls them. We are culturally shaped to fit these categories, which is why there are different gender stereotypes and expectations of what identifying as a woman or a man means in different cultures. As individual women enter different spaces, they display certain versions of woman in each. If I'm going somewhere nice with a couple of my friends from school or something, I'll wear a nice pair of jeans and nice shoes and a cute shirt or that kind of thing. But if I'm going kayaking, we're just like wearing t-shirts and hoodies. River fashion is so relaxed. I think I would get way more judgment if I showed up to the river in high heels and a skirt than I get wearing Carhartts. 
Every action that we take is literally a performance of our genders, from the length of our hair to the color of our kayaking gear. These actions and choices may not be intentional, but they still affect cultural perceptions of gender. In turn, these cultural perceptions shape our actions and choices. Basically, the performances both make and are made by culture. Now let's return to our narrative. I think it's probably because the spaces I play boat in are primarily male dominated. If you are one of the few women who is cool enough to have been invited to hang out with these bro pro kayakers, you have to fit in. So you naturally morph yourself into a bro. I noticed myself doing this and I consciously let it happen. The one way I combat this is by paddling pink boats. Off the water, I act like a bro, so I will fit in and continue getting invited. And on the water, I make a blatant attempt to paddle like the boys because I want to be as good as them. But despite this, I want everyone to know I am a girl. In these seven sentences, we begin to develop one image of the professional kayaking culture. We are reminded that whitewater kayaking is a male-dominated sport, with men making up 65% of participants in 2018. There's an underlying conflict between wanting to paddle like one of the guys to fit in, but also be clearly identifiable as a woman. Traveling back in time to their introduction to this sport, this idea of wanting to be immediately identifiable as a girl was mentioned by other women as well. I started changing my gear to be more pink and feminine uh, after I got called a boy in the eddy. Someone said, wow, that boy is paddling really well. And I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, I'm a girl. And then I was like, does that make it even even cooler that I'm a girl and I'm doing all this stuff? And they're like, sure. Like, I want everyone when they see me to not have that awkward moment. I want them to know that I'm a girl. Brooke started off paddling a black kid's kayak. When I was a little kid, I was in a black fun one and people would always say, look at that little guy go, look at that little boy, he's so cute. And my dad would say, no, she's a girl. And that was always frustrating to me because there were not very many women on the water. And so I wanted to make it apparent like, no, I'm a girl. Girls can do this too. Emily and Brooke are using pink as performance. This helps them to regain their power in these situations where they feel mislabeled, outnumbered, or unseen. However, not all women have these same positive feelings about the performance of pink. Just a note here, in the next quote, Claudia refers to two different color options, aqua fresh, which is blue, red, and white, or aurora, which is pink, gray, and blue. And I remember like picking out my Axiom and the two color options was the Aquafresh and the Aurora. And I'm obsessed with the Aurora color palette. But at the time I was like, I'm going to look too much like a girl. Like I don't want, I don't want to be seen as like a super big girly girl. The Aurora color scheme was almost like hyper feminine. It's like pink, it's purple. And I think in my mind, I wasn't ready to like claim that color palette yet. I think that was like the biggest thing when choosing the color of the boat was like, I don't know, I was worried that my gender would seem like the forefront, like the stereotypical femininity would be seen as like the forefront of who I was slash am as a paddler. And I didn't necessarily want that. And I think also like, I, I associated, and I think this is like me stereotyping. Like, I think this is my own bias. I see pink and purple and I think of your stereotypical like girly girls and I don't necessarily associate girly girls and strength together. And I think that's just like my own bias. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was like my biggest thing was like I would be seen as a stronger woman, stronger paddler if I wasn't in the pink and purple boat. 
Quite literally, the power that the color pink has is one of the most visible gender performances. Claudia claims that it's her own bias and that she's stereotyping, but these associations between pink and femininity are more common than not. Peggy Orenstein, author of the book Cinderella Ate My Daughter, has this to say. It's not that pink is intrinsically bad, but it is such a tiny slice of the rainbow. And though it may celebrate girlhood in one way, it also repeatedly and firmly fuses girls' identity to appearance. What happened? Why has girlhood become so monochromatic? Girls' attraction to pink may seem unavoidable, somehow encoded in their DNA. But according to Joe Paoletti, an associate professor of American studies at the University of Maryland, it's not. Children weren't color-coded at all until the early 20th century. It was not until the mid-1980s when amplifying age and sex differences became a dominant children's marketing strategy that pink fully came into its own. When it began to seem innately attractive to girls, part of what defined them as female, at least for the first few critical years. The decision to paddle in pink or not was conscious for these three women, but it is unconscious for many others. We return again to my research question. Do these performances resist, reinforce, or repurpose the status quo? For Claudia, her decision to not paddle the pink and purple boat was resistance to the status quo, resistance to the expectation that women like pink and that they should wear that color as a representation of their womanness. For Emily, she found out that her intentional decision to paddle pink boats made her seem more approachable, and she felt more like a role model for younger women kayakers. It was on the cover of our brochure, and little girls would come up, and I noticed that with the pink boat, like the approachability for all the little girls uh, went up a lot. I didn't look as tough, and I didn't look as unattainable. For Brooke, the decision to paddle pink was made in an attempt to repurpose the status quo, to intentionally use the color pink in her boat and gear to take the assumption that girls wear pink and to connect that color with her skills and ability as a professional kayaker. She wanted to take the assumption that she had experienced as a child, one that women and girls just aren't kayakers, and flip it on its head. She had this to say. Heads up, this next part is where that swear word comes in. I do sometimes feel the need to prove to myself and to others that yes, I am a girl, but that doesn't mean I can't go as big as the guys. I may be stinky, dirty, and broy like them, but my boat is pink and I have a fucking vagina and I can rip just as hard as anyone on a big wave. This reclaiming and repurposing of stereotypical femininity in kayaking, a space frequently perceived as masculine, was made in other ways by other women as well through the use of colorful zinc lipstick, tutus, or biodegradable glitter. These women, although clearly reclaiming and repurposing the associations between pink and womanhood, also expressed an underlying frustration with that association. Maybe there is a chance I'd be taken more seriously if I dressed more hardcore, but I don't want to be taken more seriously. I'm happy with what I do and the way that I do it. So with that, I can dress and act how I feel I want to, <laughs> which is goofy and in pink. I don't mind if people see me as soft. You know, that's fine for me. But when people do that, when they judge you based off something as simple as your boat color, to me, it's more of an underlying problem that they're facing themselves. Maybe they feel like they weren't given the opportunity because they're not girly enough. Maybe they feel like 
they need to be more girly, but they just can't do it because it doesn't fit with their image. I'm not really sure. These common sense associations between femininity and pinkness are culturally developed and reinforced. I think it's important to acknowledge that they aren't biologically determined. That is, nothing is inherently true about girls liking pink. This belief is culturally reinforced through all of our actions, even when those actions repurpose that idea to push back against other stereotypical expectations or assumptions about femininity, they can still reinforce those cultural associations. I want to close this episode talking directly to the people who will finish it and still ask, are those assumptions made about women really even that harmful? These are the stories of some of the women that I have talked with. These are the assumptions that these women have to deal with on the river. Maybe not every time that they go kayaking, but often enough that they all had stories to share. For example, when Avery, while driving down to the takeout of a river, was asked by the parking attendant, Oh, are you just running shuttle? Then again, as she arrived to the put-in with a prototype kayak and was overlooked when a man asked her paddling partners, who were both men, if it was their boat, while never making eye contact with her. Or what about Emily, who was told by another woman kayaker, You'd be taken much more seriously if you stopped wearing pink. Or even me, told by a man, You would get more respect if you dressed like a woman. What about Denise? who felt like she was an intrusion on a group of men that she knew and wanted to kayak with. This mood made me feel like I didn't belong there, even though we've been paddling together before. After the run, the boys were high-fiving, fist-bumping, and saying things like, well done, boys, or that was so sick, guys, over and over again. Two of eight guys would tell me that I did well, too. The other six didn't even look at me and paddled straight past me. When I went to the guy who showed me the lines to thank him, the only thing he said was, well, the water is lower today, so it was pretty easy anyways. And just like that, my pride and my feeling of success was taken away. And maybe if you only heard one of those stories, or if you've only experienced something like that once or twice, those stories wouldn't sound like a big deal. Maybe then you could think that these stories don't have a significant impact on the women that experience them. However, all 10 women that I spoke with, and I, have a story that sounded something like this. Every single one of us can speak about the assumptions that are made about us in and around the river. And that says something. These events aren't isolated and they are significant. What impact do these assumptions have on the women in the kayaking community? I've attended a number of events, conferences, and meetings where the topic of conversation is, how can we get more women into these sports? Maybe one way to do that is to stop treating the women who are already in these spaces as if they don't belong. Treat us like we do belong. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the river.